0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, September 18th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The 2020 Ig Nobel Prize winners were announced last night. Some people are trying to make CD players a thing again. How algorithms can detect our mood based on what we write online. And the surprising connection between Frozen and Arrested Development. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The 2020 Ig Nobel Prize winners were announced last night. The Ig Nobel Prizes go to achievements that, quote, first make people laugh, then make them think. The prizes are intended to celebrate the unusual, honor the imaginative, and spur people's interest in science, medicine, and technology. End quote. A common misconception about the Ig Nobel Prizes is that they're like the Razzies, you know, making fun of things for being bad. But as they say on their website, quote, We are honoring achievements that make people laugh and then think. Good achievements can also be odd, funny, and even absurd. So can bad achievements. A lot of good science gets attacked because of its absurdity. And a lot of bad science gets revered despite its absurdity. End quote. End quote. This year, the awards ceremony was held only online, but fun fact for you, the ceremony, while always in person prior to this year, has also been streamed online every single year since 1995, making it one of the very first events to be streamed live online. Improbable Research, who runs the prize, thinks that it may have been the first ever event streamed live online that was not a music concert, which is pretty cool. And now, without further ado, here is a rundown of the 2020 winners. The Acoustics Prize went to a multinational team that basically had an alligator inhale a bunch of helium with the high-pitched effect you'd anticipate so that they could study how alligators communicate. The Psychology Prize went to a North American team who came up with a method to identify narcissists based on their eyebrow movements. The Peace Prize actually went to the governments of India and Pakistan for, quote, having their diplomats surreptitiously ring each other's doorbells in the middle of the night and then run away before anyone had a chance to answer the door, end quote. And next up, the Physics Prize went to a team who wanted to see what happens to an earthworm when you vibrate it at high frequencies. Some of these, I think, make a lot more sense if you actually dive into the paper, but Ig Nobel does a really good job of describing them in the weirdest, most intriguing ways possible. The economics prize was awarded to the team who tried to, quote, quantify the relationship between different countries' national income inequality and the average amount of mouth-to-mouth kissing, end quote. The management prize went to a team of professional Chinese hitmen who conducted a hit by having so many of them pay the other one to do it with less and less money each time that eventually no one was murdered. The entomology prize was awarded to Richard Vetter for collecting evidence that entomologists, aka people who study insects, are indeed scared of spiders, which are not insects. Now the medicine prize went to a Dutch and Belgian team for diagnosing misophonia, and this is one I remember seeing in the headlines about when the research was published because I super identify with it. Misophonia is, quote, distress at hearing other people make chewing sounds. End quote. The materials science prize sounds completely bizarre and pointless until you understand that this British and American team are archaeologists who are trying to prove something about an artifact that had been found. They won the prize for, quote, showing that knives manufactured from frozen human feces do not work well, end quote. And finally, the second prize winner of the year to be more ripped from the headlines than based on academic papers... The Medical Education Prize was awarded to Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom, Narendra Modi of India, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador of Mexico. Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus, Donald Trump of the USA, Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, Vladimir Putin of Russia, and Gurbanguly Berdimuhamedov Berdy of Turkmenistan for, quote, using the COVID-19 viral pandemic to teach the world that politicians can have a more immediate effect on life and death than scientists and doctors can, end quote. Wow. Yeah. I mean, scientists are pretty fed up. You might have seen that Scientific American actually endorsed a candidate for president for the very first time in their 175 year history because, among other points, quote, Trump's rejection of evidence and public health measures have been catastrophic in the U.S., end quote. More and more scientists have been speaking up with their political opinions lately, but going back to the prizes, when I was looking up this year's winner, I happened across a prize winner in public health from 2009 who was a bit prescient. A team from Chicago, led by Elena Bodnar, invented the emergency bra, which is a bra that quickly converts into a pair of protective face masks. The website says that it's equipped with filtration layers similar to the N95, but is not meant to replace specialized respiratory devices. And yes, it is still on the market, and I think they're making pretty good use of the present climate. And, you know, I would not be surprised if the team behind the emergency bra was inspired by another female designer and entrepreneur, Sarah Little Turnbull who created the first prototype of the N95 respirator mask in 1961 based on her previous design of molded bra cups. Prior to that point, healthcare workers had used flat face masks that, as we all are well aware of now, can be kind of finicky and leave a lot of gaps on your face. It would take a few more years before other groups collaborated to create the N95 to successfully block pathogens, but the original design of the cupped face mask was all Turnbull. And I like to think that had the Ig Nobel Prize been around in 1961, she absolutely would have won it for designing a better medical face mask based on a bra design. Last week, the Record Industry Association of America announced that for the first time since 1986, sales of vinyl records had outpaced CDs. CDs. Now, I know there are a lot of debates in the CD versus vinyl world, but I personally think that vinyl is winning out commercially because it tends to be the pick of audiophiles. And audiophiles, as well as people who are trying to be trendy, are the main ones who are actually going to spend extra money on physical music these days. You know, most people just stream all their music on one platform or another, maybe purchase songs or a whole album if they really want to support the artist or play the music on some offline incompatible device. But a lot of people aren't buying physical music, and those who are long ago chose the vinyl record over the CD. But... Nimin Lab, or N I N M Lab, is making a bet that some of those same audiophile-slash-trendsters might jump ship for CDs again. They have just introduced a Bluetooth-enabled portable CD player. It's a clear, square device, so really it looks more like a disk drive or a double-disk CD case than the CD Walkmans that we were used to. And you can connect it to Bluetooth headphones or a Bluetooth speaker or just plug in your old-fashioned 35 millimeter headphones. It also has its own speaker and, interestingly, a magnet, so you can, like, put the CD player on your fridge while you play it. Nim Lab are the same folks who made a Bluetooth-enabled portable cassette player last year, so this kind of aesthetically pleasing nostalgia trip is their kind of thing. Now, as someone who still owns and regularly plays cassettes and CDs and vinyl records, not to mention VHS tapes. You'd think I'm clearly the target audience for this, except for the fact that I have ways to play all of those. But I actually think this Bluetooth CD player could be more broadly popular than just among us weirdos who like listening to physical media in outdated ways. There are so many people who just don't have a single way to play CDs anymore. So many laptops don't come with disk drives, a lot of people don't own DVD players anymore, let alone any kind of dedicated stereo or Walkman, and this device being new and Bluetooth enabled, not some dusty malfunctioning Walkman you find in the attic, as well as being so small and sort of able to be tucked out of the way, I can see some people who weren't quite ready to get rid of their CDs yet seeing this as a cool option to continue listening to them. However, if the many CDs I have dumpster-dived in recent years are any indication, most people have already parted ways with their old collections, and this CD player, the long-time no-see, is over a hundred bucks on Kickstarter and will be even more expensive after the campaign ends. So for the kind of scenario I was just describing, I don't think that profile of a person is probably going to shell out quite that much. But it does intrigue me to think of cheaper copycats going on the market and and how that could actually maybe be a popular item. I don't know. But if you do spring for the long time no see, or if you still own a CD player, DVD player, disk drive boing boing this week shared a video that is a few years older but super super helpful Uh, it is a video tutorial that walks you through what to do when you face that all too common issue of getting a slice of ham stuck in your cd drive i know it's happened to me thousands of times so i'll put the link to the video tutorial in the show notes and hopefully it'll help you out So yesterday, I shared some tips on how to fight back against the algorithms and feel a bit more control over the kinds of information coming across our social media feeds. Well, today, I'm going in a bit of the opposite direction, talking about just how much algorithms can discern about us from what we write online, specifically how we feel using something called sentiment analysis. And I'm pulling here mostly from an article by Dana McKenzie, originally published in Knowable magazine. So the most obvious application of sentiment analysis is for brands to market to us more effectively, but it also has other potential uses like gauging public perception of various issues, shedding light on certain curiosities like, is a minor chord really more sad than a major chord? And perhaps most seriously, using it to monitor if someone might be displaying signs of depression and in need of help. But how does sentiment analysis work? Well, it turns out that language is really tough for computers to understand. There have been tons of different methods and innovations over the years, but two main ones right now are various forms of word counting, or lexicon-based methods, and neural networks. Word counting basically counts the number of positive words in a given sentence and subtracts the negative words. But you have to account for first some words having more weight than others, like the word excellent would rank higher than the word good. And also that a sentence with multiple negative words can sometimes actually be a positive sentence. That's something that's natural to many humans but often missed by computers. So the next step is machine learning algorithms that recognize patterns and relationships between sets of words and how they can mean different things in different contexts. But to go even deeper and more reliably, you get into neural networks. Thomas Mikolov used neural networks to design word embeddings, quoting Mackenzie. These convert each word into a list of 50 to 300 numbers, called a vector. The numbers are like a fingerprint that describes a word and particularly the other words it tends to hang out with, end quote. As science advances, neural networks are being used in even more impressive and accurate ways, but they come at a high cost. Training them is extremely intensive computationally, requiring expensive hardware, specific expertise, which makes them more challenging to fix if they break, and a lot of electricity. Robert Stein joked in the 2019 Annual Review of Statistics and its application, How much electricity did Google use to train AlphaGo? The joke I heard was, enough to boil the ocean. End quote. Still, both lexicon and neural network-based methods are being used in ever more creative and useful ways. One of the ones I find most intriguing is with regards to mental health. This is something with a long history. As far back as at least the 1960s, psychiatrists were analyzing the writing of individuals to look for indicators of depression, which they found. People experiencing depression were more likely to use the pronouns I and me and often used more death-related words. Modern scientists are using similar methods to analyze social media posts. Quoting again, University of Vermont computer scientist Chris Danforth and Harvard psychologist Andrew Reese, for example, analyzed the Twitter posts of people with formal diagnoses of depression or post-traumatic stress disorder that were written prior to the diagnosis, with the consent of participants. Signs of depression began to appear as many as nine months earlier. And Facebook has an algorithm to detect users who seem to be at risk of suicide. Human experts review the cases and, if warranted, send users prompts or helpline numbers, end quote. Now, there's a long way to go in terms of accuracy with this particular application, and of course privacy is a huge concern. But there are still more general ways that it can be used, like the Facebook example or in identifying terms that can trigger relapses or other behaviors in certain users. But social media analysis is being used in less serious ways, too. One study analyzed posts to determine people's moods based on changes in the weather. A disappointing finding? Quote, They found that after about five years of increased heat, Twitter users' sense of normal changed, and they no longer tweeted about a heat wave, end quote. In other words, we're getting used to the climate crisis another slightly sad finding came from the hedonometer a 24 7 program analyzing 50 million tweets a day to get an impression of the public's mood at one point they sought out to discover if people really do hate mondays and it turns out people's tweets are sadder on tuesdays but the actually sad part is quote the weekly pattern changed after the 2016 u.s presidential election while there's still probably a weekly signal Superimposed on it are events that capture our attention and are talked about more than the basics of life, says Danforth. Translation, on Twitter, politics never stops. Any day of the week can be the saddest, he says, end quote. So if you feel like Twitter has been sadder and madder in recent years, you're not really wrong. The Hedonometer in and of itself is super fascinating. It uses a lexicon-based analysis to determine the general mood of the public every day, and then charts this on an interactive line chart that you can see on its website. And it's pretty fascinating, especially this year, to see the lows and the highs. The chart has a timeline where some particularly significant moments are listed, and if you hover over any day, you can also see the keywords that's making that day happier or sadder than any other day. It's super cool to look at and play around with, even with the knowledge that the loudest voices on Twitter may not be reflective of the general public's sentiment. But as this kind of technology advances, I'll bet there will be ways around even that limitation. Although I'm not positive how accurate I actually want this kind of tech to be, if I'm being honest. Real quick last thing to kick off your weekend before I go. You know that song from Frozen, Love is an Open Door? If you have kids, you definitely know it. It's the one where Anna and Hans sing about how perfect they are for each other. I actually performed in a parody version of this in a very strange musical once. But anyways, one of the most famous lines from that song is the one where Hans says, We finish each other's, and Anna says, Sandwiches. It turns out that line was a reference to Arrested Development. Michael Bluth is talking to his sister Lindsay about his recent love interest and says, She's special, you know, it's like we finish each other's. And Lindsay, who is eating a sandwich, butts in to say, Sandwiches? Some people have been aware of the connection before, but it went lightly viral again recently when TikTok user Tori Nichols pointed it out. And then BuzzFeed writer Krista Torres dug a bit deeper and discovered that Frozen songwriters Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez have previously stated that it was actually an intentional nod to Arrested Development. Originally, they just put it in as a placeholder, an inside joke between the two of them, but it ended up sticking. And folks have speculated there are other Arrested Development easter eggs in Frozen. Most convincingly is when Anna is dancing with the Duke of Wesselton, and he at one point hops around with his hand on his head pretending to be a chicken in a pretty exact imitation of the way that Lindsay Bluth imitates a chicken. As part of the running joke that all of the Bluths have a serious misunderstanding of what chickens look and sound like, So there you go. Next time a kid in your life makes you watch Frozen, you can be on the lookout for some fun Arrested Development homages. So tomorrow, Saturday the 19th, I am going to be posting the Kotki Ride Home's first ever weekend bonus episode. This is something common to other ride home shows. It's a chance to do a longer form episode, either on a specific topic like a deep dive or having a conversation with a guest. And tomorrow I will be posting an interview I did with Jason Kotke, the man himself behind kotke.org. So whether you're not familiar with him and his work and maybe have been a little curious about the show's name change, or if you're a longtime fan, hopefully you will enjoy our conversation. We talked a bit about how his blog and blogs overall have changed over the years, what his workflow is like, and some of our bigger ideas about internet culture and the future of art and content on the internet. So refresh your feeds again tomorrow for that. I am off now to try to convince the algorithms that I am a perfectly happy, content person who should not be paid any extra attention to. (laughs) I hope you have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.